0: Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. My name is Amy Azarito. I'm a design historian living in the Bay Area, and my new book is Elements of a Home, Curious Histories Behind Everyday Household Objects, From Pillows to Forks.
1: For more Cookery by the Book, you can follow me on Instagram. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share it with a friend. I'm always looking for new people to enjoy Cookery by the Book. Now on with the quarantine question round. Number one, where are you living? I'm in Marin County,
0: which is in the Bay Area, just north of San Francisco.
1: What restaurant are you dreaming of going to after the quarantine? I picked two.
0: So one is an omakase restaurant in San Francisco. It's um, the special occasion restaurant for uh, my husband and myself called Sasaki. And 10 people sit at a bar and watch the sushi chef make everything. And it's one of those restaurants where they don't let you put your own soy sauce on things. (laughs) Uh, And then the other is a restaurant here in Marin County called guest house. And they make these amazing ribs on Thursday nights that I've been missing.
1: What dish is getting you through this that you're making at home?
0: Yeah. So cooking light has a recipe for, they call it instant pot, vegetarian cassoulet, Uh, that I have made more times than I can count. Um, Our stay-at-home has coincided with my one-year-old daughter developing into a a real eater, a person who eats real food. Uh, So I'm cooking more than ever, and she loves this dish. And um, if I can find—I'm making it once a week. I'm making something with cannellini beans for her once a week. I can find them.
1: Now on with the show. So you are a sought-after expert on the topic of design history, both past and present. We go through everyday life using napkins, forks, spoon, tablecloths, and even a punch bowl, not even considering these items have a story and a history. My whole apartment here in New York City is filled with family heirlooms, and I love looking at history through the lens of objects. And that is what this book is all about. Can you give us a short history of household objects?
0: Sure. Um, So in the introduction to the book, I explain that most of the objects in our home were conceived to fill some sort of a need something to lie on, something to drink from, to sit on. But that doesn't mean that just because they filled a practical void that there wasn't an aesthetic consideration. And human beings seem drawn to beauty. And so when we consider the history of household objects prior to the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, which is fairly recent, Um, Some of the things that we today deem essential, or many of the things rather, so pillows and chairs and forks, the things that you mentioned, all of those things were handmade and available to a very few. And so this book looks at objects through that lens. What were things like, what was it like to live in that time period? And what were the stories of of these objects?
1: The extensive bibliography in the back of the book is the roadmap of your journey, and it's extensive. Can you talk a little bit about the process of figuring out what items you wanted to include in the book and your research? So I came up with the
0: object list in a few ways. Uh, I did spend time just sort of noting the things that are ubiquitous in all homes. Uh, So mattresses, for example, and pillows. And then I'd see what was available on the history of that object. And if it seemed like an avenue that I could explore or if it was a dead end. Um, other times I may have read something more general. So I mentioned Joan DeGene's book on comfort. And she writes about the history of the sofa in the context of a larger narrative. And I thought the story of the sofa was so compelling that reading her, her take sort of set me on a path to research more. And so with one hook like that, I would then look over those bibliographies, look for additional books, look for articles, dissertations. So just sort of following the thread if I if I could.
1: Talk a little bit about how the French pops up over and over in this book. In the introduction,
0: I was just trying to head off anyone complaining, like, why is there so so much French stuff here? Um, And so I do quote Edmund White, who wrote that the French invented the idea of luxe and they have always been willing to pay for it. Uh, And so, you know, beginning in the 16th century, there's a lot of money from French colonies, and the French spend that money and they spend it on um, not just the kings, but the aristocracy, and they spend it on uh, food and clothing and decorative objects, and they're fashion forward and they start trends. And as this market, consumer market, evolves people are trying to people makers artisans are enticing them to spend more i mean it's like our economy really uh so there's always something new uh new clocks new style of silver and you certainly don't want to be seen with the outmoded whatever that was and then everybody's just trying to catch up you know for the next even you know you could argue even now uh we're still looking to to catch up to their aesthetics
1: Well case in point Versailles. Right. Oh. Yeah. Over yeah. the top. I mean, it's interesting because Versailles
0: is not just a palace for one king, like we sort of think of it, you know, the fairy stories, but it's actually like this giant sprawling apartment complex. So all the nobility are living there. <laughs> Everyone's there. In fact, a lot of them who have these amazing townhouses in Paris are called to be there at the behest of the French king. You know, it's how he kind of keeps an eye on them. And they're crammed sometimes into small apartments. But it is crowded and they bring their servants and they bring their dogs, but they're all there together. So you have all these people with money all together all the time. They're bored. They're looking to spend their money. They're looking to outdo one another. And it just like it's this explosion of style.
1: So let's start off with the good old fork. Yeah, it's actually the first thing you wrote about for Design Sponge, a popular now defunct design blog that we mm-hmm. all miss so much. Uh, you wrote in the book, it was once considered immoral, unhygienic, and a tool of the devil. Many people, even aristocrats, preferred to eat with their hands. Can you tell us about the fork? So yeah, so most people ate with their hands. And part of the
0: reason that the fork is seen is This implement of the devil is the early fork looked like a pitchfork. It was a two-pronged implement. The idea was that God made your hands and your hands should bring the food to your body to feed your body. And that's what God intended. And by using something else, it's devilish. That was sort of, the. I mean, it's hard to get back into a medieval mindset, but that was the logic. But to me, what's fascinating about the fork is that, you know, everyone was fine eating with their hands. That that was working really well. There was a lot of ritual around hand washing. So everybody was very clean and there was a trumpet that would blow and call you to the table to hand wash and they would pour the water over your hand, not dip your hand in the basin. It was a nice ritualized thing. Well, all of a sudden there's more sugar, again, from the column. Colonies. chefs create this way to preserve fruit in this sugar, and they make this sticky, syrupy fruit dessert. And people just go
1: gaga for this. So <laughs> British food writer B. Wilson pointed out that there are fork cultures and there are chopstick cultures, but all people around the world use spoons. In the old days, people wouldn't leave their home without their spoon. And what it was made of said everything about your social standing. Can you give us a little history of the spoon?
0: This time period, pre-industrial revolution. So anything before the 1850s, things, objects, everything, cloth, uh, everything you wear, shoes, everything's made by hand, which means it's rather expensive. Uh, So that's the reason you're carrying your, your own spoon around with you. It's not until you know we have more manufacturing they can afford to buy spoons for everyone and this is you know where we get the idea of the concept of being born with a silver spoon in your mouth comes about this time as the spoon is a popular silver spoon rather as a popular baptismal gift and it's basically just because it was the least expensive item of silver one could get so that's sort of how that started, although if you were really wealthy, you might give a baby let's say thirteen spoons. They would have like a little apostle on the finial of the spoon. And so once you know once we hit the 18th century, the problem isn't, you know, do I have enough spoons? Now that people can buy spoons, they want to have as many spoons as possible. And so in the Victorian era, they have a spoon for everything.
1: so I didn't know that bread used to be the plate tell us about the trencher in the middle ages when you think about the medieval plate we're thinking about a round slice of
0: aged bread basically uh that's what the early medieval plates were made of there are recipes floating around online because these are like aged hard slices they were aged for a few days so that they worked as a plate so we have these medieval plates these trenchers and the fork bursts onto the scene and people begin eating all of their meals with this awesome new fork and the fork pokes holes in the bread plate and the sauces run through. So bread doesn't really work as a plate. So then as sort of a stopgap measure, people put maybe wood or something underneath the bread plate. So you have the bread plate then, w- and finally they're just like, ah, forget it. And we get rid of the bread and we just have the plate.
1: Can you talk about how in ancient Rome, the wine glass was disposable? Yeah, I think that's probably one of my favorite facts about the wine glass. The...
0: Blowpipe had <laughs> which was a technique, a way to make glass, had just been invented in Syria, which was at that time part of the Roman Empire. We're talking like 50 BCE. And all of a sudden there's a plethora of glass. There's a lot of glass. And so if a Roman housewife chipped a glass, it was cheaper to just throw it away and buy a new one. That that kind of disposable mentality also existed in ancient life is just is is fascinating.
1: I've never put much thought into the napkin that I use at any given meal. In the book, you say this essential domestic item has surprising origins. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, this is one of my my favorite facts from the book is that the earliest napkins were actually made of lumps of dough that were used by the Spartans. And so they would have a dough ball and they would just kind of roll it and clean their oily fingers during the meal. And then at the end of the meal, they would just, again, (laughs) throw the dough to dogs or the poor people. And then that became a slice of bread that they would use as a napkin. (laughs) And so Using a piece of dough would have been much less expensive than getting someone to weave and sew and make cloth to then use for napkins just to wipe your hands with.
1: Why do you think medieval diners would be horrified by our casual attitude toward table linens?
0: dinner and mealtime and these dinner objects are so interesting because they are so ritualized and they're symbolic and they mean a lot to us so having a bare table when you could afford to have cloth would have just not made any sense to them it would have been behavior like a peasant
1: tell us about charlemagne's tablecloth party trick So Charlemagne, just to remind everybody,
0: he was the first emperor to rule over Western Europe. And we're talking about the year uh, 755. And he had tablecloths woven with asbestos and would throw it in the fire after a dinner. And the crumbs would burn off, but the tablecloth would remain intact. Oh my God. And there are stories of Romans doing this. And so it's like, there are, is it true or not? Asbestos is apparently fireproof. Uh, and so the Greeks and Romans would use it as shrouds. And so it was, it was used as a material, a cloth. They also knew that people who had the job of weaving it seemed to get really ill and die, but they kept using it.
1: Yeah. Hello, lung cancer. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> but we don't care. <laughs>
0: It was not a great time to be a human, quite possibly. Because even if you're wealthy, you don't have air conditioning, you don't have electricity. And then if you're not, you're a slave or you're a peasant. I mean, it just, is life was about survival.
1: When I think about the punch bowl, I think about a cold beverage. But in the book you wrote, the first versions of punch were always served hot. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: When I think of punch, I think of something cold with like sherbet in the middle. But yeah, the first punch comes from India and it was served hot. And you kind of want to think about like a mold wine sort of thing. It was made to be drunk communally, but it was usually made with a liquor that needed a lot of spice and sugar to be palatable. Um, and it's initially drunk by sailors. But it just becomes like the thing to drink in Britain in the 17th century because it's like just cold. And so warming from the inside and then, you know, getting a little tipsy or more and forgetting about your troubles was the thing to do.
1: So we just talked about a bunch of food related objects, but there are many more types of objects in this book. Do you have a favorite?
0: I write about the mattress and, you know, how about Henry VIII would have his attendants stab the mattress through every night to make sure there wasn't an assassin lying in there. Uh, You know, we talked about the sofa and the chandelier. I have the jewelry box and the pillow. I don't know that I can pick a favorite, Susie.
1: So now to my segment, (laughs) putting you on the spot again, called My Favorite Cookbook. What is your all-time favorite cookbook and why?
0: I am a digital subscriber of the New York Times, and I'm a subscriber of the cooking section also. And, you know, they have the amazing Melissa Clark, who's been a guest on your podcast. Yes. And, you know, she has a recipe I used to use years ago. She um, how to make maraschino cherries. I learned how to do that via her column. So I, I just have love for our papers right now. It's a hard time for them. Uh, I might have to just pick the paper. That's I know, fine. I, I circumvented the question.
1: <laughs> where can we find you on the web and social media? I am
0: everywhere, Amy Azarito, uh, my first and last name, A M Y A Z Z A R I T O, on Instagram. That's where I am most often.
1: Well, thanks, Amy, for coming Thank on you. Cookery by the Book podcast.
0: Thank you subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com and thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast cookery by the book